in the fellowship hall. Quite a crowd today. Good morning, everyone. It's good to uh, see you here today and to be with you and to sing with you. It is a blessed thing to be able to uh, worship the Lord together. Take your Bible, if you would. Thank you. I was just about to ask for that. Take your Bible, if you would. Turn to Romans chapter 6. I haven't achieved the status of elderly like Mahdi has, but... I do appreciate more light to see than I did a few years ago. We are in Romans chapter 6, working our way through this great uh, epistle of Paul. And uh, he has been arguing and will today be arguing about the relationship between the believer and sin. And so I think we can all agree that it's an important topic, one that we need to understand better. And uh, he will help us today in doing that. So if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, we take a moment this morning to worship you together. We got to sing songs of worship to you, rejoicing in your grace, rejoicing in who you are, that because of what Christ has done, we have peace with you. We worship you and we praise you. And Father, we confess that we who are redeemed nevertheless struggle with sin. Sin is a present reality. And your word speaks to that. Paul helps us to understand that relationship between the one who has been redeemed from sin and yet still sees sin in his life. Help us to understand that. I pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, speak to us this morning from your Word. That we would not only understand, but that we would understand in such a way that we would know how to move forward. Know how to live in this life as redeemed people in relationship to sin. 
So, Father, I ask for your blessing on this very difficult subject. Be honored in this time and work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, because we lived in Russia for several years and during the time when we were looking forward to moving that direction, I, uh, I like to read and I like uh, literature and, and classic literature. And so I kind of went on a binge and read as much Russian literature as I could in English, of course, uh, but reading, uh, books by Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and others. And, and I just love that stuff. And, um, I like a big, long book. And so if you are interested in a big, long book, I can recommend one to you. It's called War and Peace. And it is, yeah, you laugh because it's a big, long book. And uh, there are various reasons that people are intimidated to read War and Peace. First of all, it's, it's about, you know, early 19th century uh, goings-on in, in Europe and Russia. And so that's intimidating, uh, perhaps, for you. Perhaps just the size of it is intimidating because it can be 12, 1,300 pages long, and that can be intimidating. But I think one of the reasons, even probably some of you have tried to read it and have started and realized there are a lot of names that are very unfamiliar to you because they're Russian, and they sound very similar. And when I say a lot, I Googled this morning how many characters there are, and there was not agreement amongst you know the various people who answered it, but one number was 580 characters in this book. And not all of them are important, of course, but that can be off-putting, especially if you can't keep one straight from the other because they all end in ski or something like that, and you can't keep them apart. It's important for us to understand characters. And I read it the first time back in the 90s when I wasn't all that familiar with Russian language or names, and it, I, I made it through it, and it was fine, and I enjoyed it. But then I read it 10 years later when the Russian names were as clear and distinct in my mind as Bill and Jim because of our time in Russia. And I found I enjoyed it much more once I understood the characters, once I understood how to keep them apart. And so for our passage today, it doesn't exactly have characters uh, per se, but there are some, some aspects of personification that go on in this passage that will help us if we can define some terms or if we can keep clear the cast of characters in these three little verses. And so I'm going to go through and talk to you about just some of the cast of characters. First is sin. You notice that sin is a character. And sin, of course, is anything that goes against God's character or God's commands. We can sin in action or in word or in thought or in omitting any of those things that we should have done. And in our passage today, sin is portrayed as a person, uh, personified in a sense. And so that's one character that we need to keep in mind is sin. There's another character we need to keep in mind, and that is our mortal body. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And so I'm going to define that today as this, this is the body in which you live with all of its weakness and susceptibility to temptation. It's the body in which you live. That's your mortal body. And thirdly, you. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Who are you? Well, 
I don't, I don't mean for you to give your name or uh, write down characteristics about you, but that's a character. You are a character. Who is you my, is my question. Not who are you, but who is you? This is the central core of who you are. In the language of chapter 5, you have been transferred from Adam to Christ, if you're a believer. You died with Christ, and you have been raised to new life. You is the part of you that will never die again. So you're going to see you appear several times in these three verses. So we need to keep in mind that is the central core of who you are. Another one is your members. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin. What does it mean by your members? Well, it's very similar to your mortal body. Your members consists of the part of you that can be used to obey or disobey God. Your mind, your hands, your mouth, you, the part of you that can be used to disobey God. That part of you can be used in service to God or in service to unrighteousness. Your members. And then finally, the character we want to identify is God. He's the one who has redeemed us. He's the one who has rightful claim on us, both as our creator and as our re-creator, as our redeemer. And so if we can keep those in our minds as we go through our passage today, we'll make things a little more simple because I'll be the first one to confess that Paul's language here in chapter 6 is, is not super straightforward. You have to work at it to understand what he's trying to say. You have to work at it to understand and take a message for yourself from it. So if we can keep straight who, what about uh, this character of sin and mortal body, and you, and your members, and God, then we can have a platform from which to work through our passage today. That all by way of introduction. He says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not give sin the Lord's place. You are dead to sin and alive to God. And that sounds like last week's sermon and the sermon of the week before. And you may think that we've hit on that a little bit and you've got that down. But the reason I bring it up today is because it's important for us to understand that becoming a Christian involves not just a simple decision or commitment like turning over a new leaf or making a New Year's resolution. It's not just changing affiliation. In New Testament terms, becoming a Christian involves a resurrection from the dead. In New Testament terms, becoming a Christian is a miracle worked by God. You are dead to sin and alive to God. The whole argument for chapter 5 has been that you were born in a state of deadness. That you were born in a position where you have inherited from your first father, Adam, his sin, his judgment, his punishment. That has been imputed to you. 
You have inherited all of that stuff because of the fact that you were born in Him. And we were all born in Him. But then chapter 5 continues to argue that though that sin that we've inherited and that we actively do ourselves, that's already been applied to our account and that we jump into with both feet ourselves, that sin means that we have a penalty before God. And so we have to pay that penalty, and that penalty is death. That penalty is separation from God, eternal separation from God. And so that's the penalty, that's the condition under which we were born. Chapter 5 is not done because, of course, it goes on to explain about Christ and how Christ himself obeyed the law, was obedient to God, where Adam was disobedient and where you and I have been disobedient. And he, he obeyed God and thus he did not incur judgment for himself. He did not have a penalty for his own sin to pay. He was righteous before God in his own behavior. But he went to the cross. He went to pay the penalty for sin, not his own, but the penalty for my sin, the penalty for your sin. And so here you have obedience in Christ where there has been disobedience in Adam, and you have the penalty paid in Christ where you have the penalty owed in Adam, and where you had death that you inherited in Adam, in Christ, there's life, new life. And so Paul has been arguing here in chapter 6 that, that you who are in Christ, you have died with him. His death counts as your death. You died to sin. And you were raised to new life with Christ. His resurrection counts as your resurrection so that there's actually a new life that you have. You are alive where you used to be dead. And so becoming a believer in Jesus Christ is not as simple as signing the dotted line or making a commitment. It's a... It's a resurrection that God does within us who are in Christ. He makes us alive. And so it's important for us to remember that we are dead to sin and alive to God. We have not just changed favorite teams or turned over a new leaf. We're not just giving Christianity a try. We have been made alive where we were dead if we are in Christ. There's a, a resurrection and so you are dead to sin and no longer have obligations to that. And you are alive to God and have every obligation to Him. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17 The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christian, you have been recreated. You've been given new life. You were dead to sin and alive to God. And so Paul says here, do not give sin control. Do not give sin control. In light of the radical change that God has brought about in your identity and your new life that He has given you, don't let sin go on using you and using your mortal body for its own purposes, like it did when you were an unbeliever. Sin got to have its way with you because it was your master. It is no longer your master. So don't let sin be in control of you anymore. Don't let sin have its old throne of dominion over you. Or it will drive you to obey its sinful passions. If you yield that 
position back to sin. If you give sin its old throne of dominion, of dominance over you in your life, it will cause you once again to be enslaved to the lusts of your body, to the desires of your flesh, to the passions of your mortal body. So don't hand over control because that's the result. Anytime you give sin, it's old place over you. Your life begins to look once more like it did before you were even saved. And so Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Instead, present yourself properly. Present yourself properly. Don't present your members to sin, he says. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't present your members to sin. And remember what we said we meant by members. Your members are any part of you that can be used to sin against God. Or that can be used to obey God. It could be your mind. It could be your passions. It could be your heart. Your speech. Any part of you that can be used to disobey God or obey God. It's interesting, the the word translated here as instruments is the same word that often gets translated as weapons. Weapons. Maybe some of your versions actually translate it that way. When we think of it in those terms, I think instruments is the proper translation here, but, but thinking in those terms helps us to see a little bit of the picture of what goes on when we give control to sin again. It's as if... We were slaves to a terrible and cruel master, and that's true. And he put our weapons, he put our instruments, he put our abilities to use for his own nefarious purposes. But then we were freed. We were freed by the self-sacrifice of a loving Savior. So that we were set free from that slavery. And now... As freed slaves, we ought to make our instruments, we ought to make our weapons, we ought to make our abilities, our capacities available to our new master for use by him. He bought us, he freed us at great personal expense. But we don't always, do we? Instead, having been freed by this great and glorious Savior, we take our weapons back to our old master and hand them over to him to use against our new master. To use against our Savior who gave Himself that we might have life. And that's kind of the picture of what goes on when we sin. What, what, a, what a treason. What treachery we commit when we do that. When we hand the members of our body, all the parts that can possibly be used for sin, when we hand them over to sin, they become instruments or weapons useful to unrighteousness, to our old master, to accomplish his purposes. And we hand ourselves over that way. Christian, we are redeemed to the very core, but when we sin, we are fighting for the other side. Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but do present yourself to God as alive. Instead, we should present ourselves to God. 
Now, if you pay attention to patterns and parallels, and if you're reading scripture, you should pay attention to that stuff. If you're reading poetry, you certainly should. But in the Bible, oftentimes the authors will use certain uh, forms of speech that communicate certain things to us. So you need to pay, pay attention to parallels and to things that you expect to read and then don't read. For example, he said, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present, you expect it to say, your members, but it doesn't. He says, don't present your members to sin, but do present yourself to God. And that's significant. That's significant. Because when we talk about sin, and this is difficult for us to grasp, so I hope I'm, I don't become, uh, I almost said preachy, but that, that's, that's probably going to happen. <laughs> pedantic. I, I hope I don't become pedantic or something like that, but but we need to think carefully and slowly through this because every one of you who's a Christian has asked the question, why do I still sin? Especially as I went through and worked through Romans chapter 5 and saw this great new distinction. I am now in Christ. I'm no longer in Adam. I'm in Christ. So why do I sin? We all have that question. And so as we work through this, we need to... Think carefully. We need to work through it practically and slowly, and we need to allow ourselves to, to inch along through the text. So he doesn't say, don't present your members, or do present your members to God. We expected that because he said, don't present your members to sin. And if you write it in parallel, you would expect, do present your members. And he's going to get to that later on. I realize I've, I've read the rest of the verse too. But he doesn't start there. He wants to start with your identity. Present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. The discussion is not merely of your behavior. It doesn't even start with your behavior. It starts with your identity. It starts with who you really are. And then it flows into behavior, but it starts with who you are and who you are in Christ. Present yourselves to God. So he's saying here that we need to keep in mind, we need to hold before us the things that are true about who we really are. He's going to get to behavior in the next clause. But he starts with the fact that we need to present ourselves to God, present ourselves who we are, the, the, the part deep down that, that doesn't change, that part that doesn't die, the part that has been taken from Adam and placed in Christ. And he, Paul will say in Ephesians 1, we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. That part of us, the deepest deep down part of us, present that part of us to God. Come to God as one who has been brought from death to life. What he's saying is, Christian, remember who you are. And come to God as that person who is alive in Christ and has died to sin. So when we talk about sanctification, 
the process of how we begin to walk more and more with God in our lives practically, it starts with our identity, who we are. So he goes right back to the beginning. In a sense, he's saying, partway through this, this sentence, pause, go back and reread the second half of chapter 5 so that you can reconfirm who you are in Christ, what has been accomplished for you. Go back and look at the beginning of 6 and see that you are alive and you are alive to God. You, you died to sin. Sin is no longer your master. Definitively defeated. Instead, you've been made alive to God in Christ. And so, often, as we are preaching through this text, and, and we have several more chapters of this stuff to go, Paul is going to hammer who we are in Christ before he gets to the imperatives of what we do in light of the fact that we are in Christ. That, that doesn't really come until chapter 12. This is only a 16-chapter book. And that, start, that doesn't really start until chapter 12 because he wants to spend time helping us understand, Christian, who we are in Christ, what it means for us, what are the resources at our disposal, what is the truth about our identity and who we really are, what has really been accomplished for us. And so I know some people struggle with us taking this long to work through this book because... The imperatives are coming. The, the commands are coming in chapter 12 where we're told more clearly and, and explicitly how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to avoid. I mean, get to it already. That's not what Paul does. Paul argues and he thinks and he presents and he preaches and he teaches and he digs down and he reflects of, on who we are in Christ and what has been accomplished. And Christian, that's part of our issue, is we want to get to the tell-me-what-to-do stuff. We want to skip over the what-has-been-done stuff. And that's not only a shame, but that's not Christianity. That borders on Phariseeism. Just, just tell me what to do. We have to know. We have to know what has been done and who we are. And so Paul labors the point, and so we are laboring the point together. And he says, don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, review the last chapter or two. And then he says, secondly, do present your members to God for righteousness. Present yourself to God for righteousness as those have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We have this body. We have this opportunity to serve God in this life. We have certain abilities. We have our thoughts. We have our emotions. We have our hands. We have our brains. We have the capacity to serve God and He has purchased us. He has paid the penalty for us and made us His own. He has redeemed us. He's the one who is that gracious and glorious Savior who rescued us from the, the terrible slave master we had before. He owns us. He has every right to us. So present yourself. Present your members. 
present all your capacity to God to serve Him, to serve righteousness. We've been brought from death to life so that we would be made alive to God and we should present ourselves to Him so that He can make use of us for His purposes. So for what purposes did God redeem us? What is the purpose for which He redeemed us? We already read 2 Corinthians 5.15 together as a congregation. And Woody hadn't glanced at my notes beforehand, uh, but it fits right in. There are other verses that say the same thing. Romans 8.29 talks about those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Meaning, God is shaping us in our lives. He saved us, He rescued us, He redeemed us, and is shaping us in our lives. Peter gets more explicit in 1 Peter 2.24. talks about Jesus. It says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Purpose statement coming. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He redeemed us so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Perhaps even more explicitly, Paul says in Titus 2.14, Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, get this, who are zealous for good works. God has changed our identity. He has given us life where we had death. He has made us his own. He has rescued us from that old slavery. He is now our master. He owns us. And he does so. He redeems us for the purpose of us being zealous for good works, that we would walk in newness of life, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son, even in our lives. So that's a great purpose for which God has saved us. Not to give our members over to our old enemy, our old master, and let him, let him fight against our new master, our Savior, using our weapons but instead to hand ourselves over, to turn ourselves over for use by God to serve Him in any way He sees fit. Well, so the question is, how does He accomplish His purpose of conforming His people to the image of His Son? How does He purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works? How does He do that? Well, point three, you are under grace, so sin is not your Lord. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will not reign over you. This is in the future tense and it may confuse us. He just is making a statement of fact about the present. He's not talking about some distant point in the future. There will be a time when sin no longer reigns over you. He's saying, Christian, sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will not be your Lord. He's speaking in the present. Sin has been dethroned, and it will not be allowed ever to reign over you in the way it did before you were in Christ. Sin will not reign over you. And he gives the why, the reason why sin will not reign over you. He says, you are not under law. For sin will have no dominion over since 
over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Catch this. Removing us from under the law and placing us under grace is the means God uses to form the people he has redeemed into people who are ready for good works. Removing us from under the law and placing us under grace is the means God uses to form his redeemed people into a people who are ready for good works. That's the very means by which he does it. That may sound a little bit counterintuitive, but we need to remember where we've come from. In, in Romans, we've already learned that those who are under the law have sin reigning over them. And now we're beginning to see that those who are not under law do not have sin reigning over them. Remember Romans 3.20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes what? Righteousness? Obedience? Pleasing God? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The coming of the law reveals sin. Thus we know sin. He's going to say even more explicitly in 520, just a few verses up from where we are, the law came in for a purpose. What was that purpose? It was very counterintuitive. To increase the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. The law is a problem for sinful man, not because the law is sinful, not because the law is bad, not because there is anything bad about the law. The law is a problem for sinful man because in its righteous demands that it makes, those demands only serve to show our inability to keep them and our rebellion against God. In our flesh, we cannot fulfill the law. And the result is more sin. And so the giving of the law results in the revelation of sin, results in the multiplication of sin. And so those who are living under the law, they have sin reigning over them. That's why I said those who are under the law are under sin. But Paul gives us hope. He says... You are not under law. You are under grace. You are under grace. This is what he's saying a couple chapters later. Turn over to chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I know you're looking forward to getting to Romans 8 because there's a lot of excitement, a lot of encouragement when you get to Romans 8. And we will dwell on that a long time, trust me. But here's a, here's a foretaste. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That righteous requirement of the law becomes fulfilled in us, not only on our behalf. That is certainly true. It's fulfilled on our behalf. But he says it's fulfilled in us. 
Because we don't walk in the flesh, we walk in the Spirit. We're alive in Christ. And so you, Christian, are not under law, you are under grace. And so Jesus has accomplished the law on your behalf. Jesus has given his own life to pay for your failure. When you failed to keep the law, Christian, you are under grace. And not only has that stuff been accomplished on your behalf. Remember, we talked about identity. Our identity is important. There's a, there's a great difference that we need to have very clear in our minds between the gospel of any other religion and the gospel of Christ. The gospel of any other religion tells you that you need to do or become certain things in order that you can receive the stamp of approval from God. There's a, there's a ladder to climb. There are enemies to defeat. There are things you need to do to accomplish in order to achieve that thing. And that, that's law. But grace says... Those things have been accomplished for you by Christ. And so you begin the Christian life with that stamp of approval from God. There is no hill to climb to get there. There is no ladder to climb. There there are no giants or enemies to defeat in order to have that stamp of approval. That is yours the moment you enter Christ. You start from a place of acceptance with God. You start from a place of new life. You start from a place where He has already approved you, not because you are worthy of approval, but because Christ is worthy of approval and He has accomplished that for you. And so you start from a place of having received righteousness from Christ, having received forgiveness, having received new life. You start from that place. That's grace. And His grace continues because if we were to go on through chapter 8, we would see that God has given His Holy Spirit to live within us so that we start from that place of acceptance with God and we move forward in the power of the Spirit, obeying Him, learning to obey Him, learning to stop handing our members over to the enemy to be His weapons, to be used by Him, but instead learning by the power of the Holy Spirit to give ourselves over to God, to be useful to Him. Christian, you are under grace. And so what's the application for us? What's the application for us? Well, if you're not in Christ, the application is you need to trust Christ. You have no hope on your own of ever pleasing God. The judgment day will come, as you well know. And you have no hope on your own of appeasing him. You cannot climb that ladder. You cannot defeat those enemies. You you will face him guilty on your own for the things that you've done. And so you need to put your faith in Christ who has paid that penalty for you. Who, Who obeyed where you've disobeyed. Died so that you don't have to die. And has been raised from the dead so that you can be made alive in him. Alive to God in Christ. So trust in Him. 
trust in Him, and you receive grace. And you begin the Christian life acceptable to God because of Christ. What's the application for the Christian? Present yourself to God as who and what you really are. One who has been brought from death to life. Present yourself to God as someone alive, able to serve, able to obey, able to make yourself useful to His use as an instrument of righteousness. And then present your members to God to serve Him with all that you are as one who is alive to God in Christ. So this relationship between the redeemed believer who is new in Christ, who has been made alive, who is a new creation, the relationship between me and sin is what Paul's been talking about here. Sin is an old master. And when I, when I decide to sin, when I go that route, it's as if I've taken the weapons of my, my Savior, my new master, my new Lord, who bought me, who, who owns me, who, who, who is wonderful and loves me. And I take the instruments meant to serve him and I give them back to my enemy, his enemy, to fight against my Savior. But Christian, we don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Present yourself to God as one who is alive from the dead. You are alive. And present your members back to God as instruments to be useful in His service to righteousness. So we're not done traveling through uh, Romans 6 or 7 or 8 or the arguments that he's making here, but my desire, my goal for today is that we have a better understanding when we ask the question, why do I sin? I, I have died with Christ to sin. I made alive with Christ to God. Why do I still sin? It's just because I choose to. It's because I choose to. I go back to serve my old master. But Christian, we need to remind ourselves that's who we were. That's not who we are. We are alive in Christ. And so I want to present my members to God as one who's been raised to new life to serve Him in righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, this subject is difficult. It's difficult because it's painful, because I have sin that I deal with and I wrestle with and I hate. It's close to home and it hurts. And so it's hard to think clearly about it. And it's difficult because it goes right down to who we are in our daily experience. And even Paul's experiences he's going to talk about in chapter 7. But Father, I pray that you would help us to understand and to stand in our identity in Christ. That we have been made alive. We have been brought to a place where we are at peace with God. Father, your love for us 
as experienced in Christ, as known deeply in Christ, causes us to love you in return and causes us to want to obey you. Even that is of your grace. Even that is of your mercy, of your working in our lives. And so, Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for those times that we have experienced, even this week, where we resisted temptation, where we made decisions that, that were deliberate placing of our members in your service. And, Father, we thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ for those times when we have placed the members of our body in service to your enemy. Father, we thank you for that forgiveness. We thank you that you have given us peace with you. We ask that you would work in us. We ask that we would understand truly who we are and this grace we get to start from, not work towards, but start from. And then help us walk in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. May grace, mercy, and peace be with you all from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. If you would like to pray with someone, there will be a family up here to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you and you are dismissed.